In the last episode of Read Me a Story, we left Gabriel Liberty forming an idea of how to get Dr. Singh off his back. In this episode, we discover what his plan is and the role he hopes to persuade Clara to play in it. Will she go along with his outrageous suggestion? Let's find out. Chapter 16 As she stacked the dirty plates to be washed, with Ned at her side on his little step ready to help, Clara listened to Mr Liberty's extraordinary proposal. Amused, she let him grind on until at last he came to a halt and his words were left hanging awkwardly in the confined space between them. Waiting for her response, he shuffled his big feet from side to side like a naughty schoolboy up before the headmaster. Now, let me get this straight, she said. You want me to pretend to be your daughter? He shuffled again. I thought I'd just made that abundantly clear. Would it be too much of an imposition to ask why? I might have known you'd make matters difficult. Why can't you just accept what I've asked you to do? Because it's not in my nature. I like to be presented with all the salient facts before I make up my mind about anything. If I'm going to play along with your curious game of subterfuge, I think I ought to be allowed to know the whys, the hows and the whats. So divvy up the information or leave Ned and me to get on. We have a busy day ahead of us. God damn it, you're the most infuriating woman I've ever had the misfortune to meet, Miss Costello. With all due respect, Mr Liberty, it strikes me that you need my help more than I need your impertinence. So if you're through with the name-calling, perhaps... All right, all right. I need you to pretend to be my daughter, so that annoying quack will leave me alone. I need to prove to him that I have a loving member of my family clasped to my bosom who is eager to keep a watchful eye over me. And if you can't prove that is the case? I'll probably have social services snooping round here faster than you can say meals on bloody wheels. And they won't leave it there. You've seen the state of the house. Their next move will be to have me rehoused, claiming I'm incapable of taking care of myself. You don't think you're overreacting just a touch. They couldn't do that unless you allowed them to. If it was your freedom in the balance, would you want to risk it? She considered what he had said. OK, maybe yours being paranoid, and perhaps he might be better off in a more wholesome environment with a regular supply of meals. But who was to say? other than the man himself, whether he would feel better off living that way. If he wanted to spend the rest of his life until he died from bubonic plague, surrounded by his own mess, wasn't that his right? She didn't know anything about taking care of the elderly and what power social services had, but she knew enough to understand that a matter of principle was at stake. Clearly, Mr Liberty felt that this Dr Singh, who was currently waiting to meet his patient's loving, caring daughter inside Mermaid House, wasn't going to leave him alone until he had been convinced that his patient was to be looked after. If a couple of fibs was all it would take to make him happy, why not tell them? OK, she said, I'll do it. And given that your doctor has been kept waiting long enough, we ought to get this over and done with immediately. We don't have time to concoct anything elaborate, so we'll have to keep our story simple. Agreed? He nodded. If he asks, I thought you could tell him you were coming to stay indefinitely. And Ned, what do we say about him? 
Mr Liberty hesitated. I hadn't thought of him. I suppose he'll have to be my grandson. At this last remark, and with his hands cupping an enormous bubble, Ned turned from the sink. He beamed and gave the bubble a long, steady blow. It moved slowly from his hands, drifted up towards Mr Liberty, and came to rest on his shoulder, where it burst. Let's hope that's not what's going to happen to our story when we meet your Dr Singh, Clara remarked. Dr Singh was absorbed in a three-month-old daily telegraph that was lying on top of a box of old shoes and jam jars when Gabriel and his newly acquired family entered the kitchen. He raised his head when he heard their footsteps. In a loud, jovial voice, Gabriel said, Dr Singh, I'd like you to meet my daughter, Damson, and my grandson, Ned. I'm very pleased to meet you, the doctor said, coming forward to shake hands. But Mr Liberty, you didn't tell me you were fortunate enough to be a grandfather. And such a fine-looking boy, so like his mother. The resemblance is uncanny. You're not my priest, I don't have to confess everything to you. Dr Singh shared a conspiratorial smile with Miss Costello. Your father is a very unusual man. His sense of humour is not to everyone's taste, I think. Oh, he's always been a quirky old devil, but that's his charm. Affectionately curmudgeonly is what we say about him. Isn't that right, Dad? She's enjoying every moment of this, thought Gabriel with a half smile. But then, truth to tell, so was he. It was particularly satisfying to know that he was getting one over on this interfering quack. If you say so, dear. He tells me that you're coming to stay with him, Dr Singh said. Yes, that's right. I thought I'd take him in hand, you know, tidy the place up a bit. Maybe encourage him to find himself a housekeeper. Dr Singh smiled again. I wish you luck in those tasks. He cast his eyes meaningfully around the kitchen. Oh, I think I'm more than up to the task of whipping my rascal of a father into shape. No worries on that score. Well, if you've both finished discussing me as though I were a dimwit, Gabriel said tersely, perhaps you'd be kind enough to show the doctor to the door, damson. There's a whole world of terminally ill people out there who must be desperate for a good dying scene in the arms of their local GP. Yes, Dad, of course. Thinking how easily they'd got away with it, Gabriel watched the doctor being led out of the kitchen. He heard the back door open and was on the verge of a congratulatory pat on the back when the doctor reappeared. Gabriel froze. Damn, had the wretched man been playing along with them? Dear, oh dear, the doctor said. You would think I'd know better by now. He came toward Gabriel and reached for his medical bag, which he'd left on a chair beside the table. I've been told so many times that I would lose my head if it were not joined to the rest of me, he laughed brightly. Gabriel forced himself to join in. Got everything now, he asked. I do hope so. I certainly don't want to make another trip out here today. Your drive is murder on my little car suspension. Better keep away then. Despite the rain, Miss Costello walked the doctor to his car. Through the window, Gabriel could see that they were deep in conversation. No need to ask who or what they were discussing. Doubtless the good doctor was pumping the prodigal daughter about her pathetic old father. Well, he said when she came back into the kitchen. Well, what? she asked, shaking the droplets of rain from her hair. Did we get away with it? For the time being, yes. Huh? You've earned yourself a reprieve until next week. 
He said he's going to try and pop in on Monday to make sure your eye has recovered. This is victimisation, Gabriel roared. I won't stand for it. It's outrageous. A lot of people would give their back teeth for such a caring doctor. Well, I'm not one of them. I'll, I'll pretend I'm not in. Or better still, I'll go to the surgery. That'll show this stupid little man. Then in a less acerbic tone, why can't people understand that I just want to be left alone? Is that really too much to ask? He slumped into a chair at the table. With her hands resting on Ned's shoulders, Clara observed him from across the room. The poor man made a desolate picture, and for the first time since meeting him, she saw not a growling, teeth-bearing tyrant, but an elderly man who wanted to preserve his dignity. It was just that he was going about it in the wrong way. The modern world didn't work by the old rules of dictatorship. Nowadays it was run on different lines, by compromise, tact, guile and subtle manipulation. She should know, she'd used them well enough during her time with Phoenix. She had lost count of the number of management training courses she'd been on, where she'd been told that there is no such thing as a problem. Problems are challenges, and challenges are to be shared. But how could this old man ever adapt? How could he ever wise up to the great universal truth that it was all about give and take? Chapter 17 There was nothing else she could say, so Clara took Ned's and turned to leave. Why is Mr Liberty so sad? Ned asked, his voice too loud and too clear. I'm not sad, rumbled Mr Liberty, his head still in his hands. I've never been sad in my life. Pulling his hand out of Clara's gasp, Ned went back to the table, stood next to the old man and peered at him. Why are you hiding behind your hands, he asked. Are you playing a game? Grandpa does that with me. He sits very still, makes gaps in his fingers, then suddenly goes boo. Makes me jump every time. Shall I show you? Before either Clara or Mr Liberty could stop him, Ned let out an almighty boo. Mr Liberty jumped, but Clara could see he was trying to pretend he hadn't. Do you want to play the game with me, asked Ned. It might cheer you up. Ned, I don't think Mr Liberty wants to play anything right now. He's not in the mood, and anyway, we've got to keep our part of the bargain. At this, Mr Liberty raised his head. Bargain? You generously gave us a place to stop for the night, on the understanding we wouldn't cause you any trouble, and that we would be gone first thing. She looked at her watch. First thing was several hours ago, but by lunchtime we should be out of your way. Mr Liberty seemed to pull himself together. Of course. Well, I mustn't keep you. An agreement is an agreement. Where are you going? Have you sorted out a campsite? Not yet, but I thought we'd go into Deacon's Bridge and stock up on supplies. I also need to find a laundrette. You've as much chance of finding one of those around here as tripping over a crock of gold. He was sounding much more his indomitable self. We used to have one, but it was turned into a fancy art gallery selling tacky paintings to dumb tourists who wouldn't know art if it jumped up and bit them on the nose. Clara smiled. We'll make it our first port of call then. Once more she turned to go, then hesitated. Would you like us to fetch you anything? Wouldn't be any trouble? He regarded her uncertainly. You're coming back in this direction? 
Not specifically, but I don't mind making the trip. You're not that far out of the town, are you? That's good of you, he said gruffly. He took a ballpoint pen from Ned, who was making an irritating noise by repeatedly clicking the top of it with his thumb. But there's nothing I need. She looked at him thoughtfully. You're not used to kindness, are you? He squared his shoulders and straightened his back. At my age, kindness and charity become indistinguishable. So, you'd be much happier if you believed my offer was born out of a desire to interfere rather than accept it as a genuine offer of help. He didn't say anything but removed from Ned's hands a magnifying glass he had unearthed from an overflowing shoebox of junk on the table. He'd been using it to inspect Mermy at close quarters. Look, she said, trying to be considerate. I'm sorry things didn't pan out better with your tenacious doctor, but the only way you're going to get him off your back is to meet him halfway. Clean the place up and prove to him you can fend for yourself. Can't you enlist your real daughter's help? Mr Liberty brought the magnifying glass down on the table with a sharp bang. Damson doesn't show her face here unless she has to. His voice was hard, scornful. Damson's an unusual name. I meant to ask you about it earlier. Sounds more like a cat's name, doesn't it? Which is quite appropriate. Damson can be as sleek and cunning as any feline creature I've ever known. Scratchy too when she wants to be. Was the name your idea? He shook his head. The credit goes to my first wife. She had a fondness for the eccentric. Clara realised that this was the first time he'd referred to his family. Do you have any other children? she asked. A pair of sons who were both two shades of stupid. Casper is a con man with as much head for business as a watermelon. He's a chippy brat who, like Icarus, hasn't yet learned the hazards of flying too close to the sun. My other son Jonah is a weak-willed idealist. And what terrible crime did he commit to gain such familial approval? That, Miss Costello, is none of your business. And while we're on the subject, why have you started asking me so many questions? I thought you said you were going. I was simply wondering why you don't ask for the help, and you've given me the answer. You've scared them off, haven't you? But, like you said, it's none of my business, so I'll say goodbye. It's been an education meeting you. She held out her hand. He stared at it hard, rose to his feet and then took it in his large distorted paw. Then he withdrew it, looking as if he was about to say something important. Tell me, Miss Costello, he said slowly, you strike me as a woman who enjoys a challenge, am I right? It has been said of me, yes. And you told me over breakfast that you don't have any real plans, that you and your son are just drifting from one place to another. Is that so? Absolutely nothing wrong with your memory. Your point being? I'd like to make you an offer. Help me rid of that inter... Help rid me of that interfering quack by pretending to be my daughter for a while longer. Are we talking more lies? And perhaps you'd elaborate on what a while longer actually means. Another day? Another two days? She watched him swallow and sensed that he was hoping for more than that from her. It depends on how long you think it would take to sort out this mess. He indicated the kitchen. Clara was stunned. He couldn't be serious. Whoa there, I'm not sure I like where this is going. What on earth makes you think I would be remotely interested in dealing with this little lot? 
Ned and I are on holiday. Cleaning up after somebody else doesn't feature on our itinerary. But you do owe me a favour. Since when? Since I rescued you from those goons when you were trespassing on my land. The breathtaking cheek of the man. Oh, nice try, she said derisively. You think you can toss that one in and hold my conscience to ransom? Well, think again, buddy, because you've got me all wrong. Anyway, I've already carried out one favour for you by lying to Dr Singh about being your daughter. If I can't appeal to your good nature, then maybe your purse will be a better option. Sorry, still not interested. Try flaunting your money at the yellow pages. I'd sooner flaunt it at a person I know and trust. And how can you be so sure I won't fleece you? I pride myself on being a good judge of character. The flattery, even from you, won't work. Get hold of a firm of contract cleaners with a good reputation. I don't want strangers in my house. Please, won't you even consider my offer? I'm willing to pay you whatever it takes. She held her ground. Look, you might be used to bullying people into doing what you want them to do, but you can't do the same with me. And for your information, I'm not for sale. Come, come, everything is for sale. Surely you know that. And just think of the challenge. The answer is still a resounding no. It was the most monstrously ludicrous idea Clara had ever heard. And as she and Ned packed up Winnie, she didn't know whether to feel flattered by Mr Liberty's proposal, that she clearly approved of her, or downright insulted that he thought she might want to waste her holiday cleaning up his mess. Completely off his trolley, she muttered under her breath as she moved about Winnie, putting packets and jars into their respective cubbyholes and slamming the locker doors. Just who does he think he is? It was a power thing, she suspected. Old laughing boy needed someone he could treat as a skivvy. That was what this was about. Well, not this girl. She was nobody's skivvy, no siree. And how dare he think she could be bought off? She hadn't given up a well-paid job to become a cleaner for that miserable old goat. Gabriel watched the camper van trundle slowly along the drive until it was out of sight. He turned from the rain-lashed stone mullion window in the tower, angry and disappointed. Angry because he'd been reduced to a humiliating level of begging someone to help him, and disappointed because he knew he was going to miss having that Costello woman and her son around. They hadn't been with him long, but there had been something about them he had liked, something about their company that had appealed to him. The woman's forthrightness had been a refreshing change from the patronising sycophancy with which he was frequently treated, and the boy had been as bright as a button, not missing anything that was going on around him. He had forgotten how honest children could be, how they could put their finger on a raw spot and prod it mercilessly. Sad was how the youngster had described him. Well, yes, in that moment he had felt sad, weary too, worn out, shriveled up, a husk of his former self, old and ready to throw in the towel. He knew he was bucking against the system, which held all the trump cards. It was only a matter of time before Dr Singh and his kind would have their pernicious way with him. It was his greatest fear that the time would come when he would be carted off to live the remainder of his life among a crowd of insufferable strangers whose only excitement would be a change of incontinence pad after a game of bingo. It was, he knew, a fear that was bordering on the pathological, and not one based on personal experience of these places. 
but he had read enough horror stories in the papers to know that dreadful things went on in retirement homes. Last year, before the television had broken, he'd watched an appalling series of programmes about a bunch of poor old dears and ageing Jack the Lads living out their lives to the tune of It's a Long Way to Tipperary and the Hokey Cokey. Sometimes he had nightmares about this, from which he woke in a sweat, heart-pounding, terrified that he would end his days with sickeningly motherly women calling him dear and offering to take him to the lavatory. Dear God, he'd rather take one of his shotguns to his head. That was why he'd resorted to pleading with the Costello woman. He'd seen in her someone capable and strong, someone he could trust to help him sort out Mermaid House. He knew it had to be done, and if somebody could just get the job started for him, he felt confident he would see it through. Nothing had been done since well before Val's death, and all of her things were still lying about the place. Clothes, jewellery, perfume, books, stuff he didn't need, but he felt he couldn't discard. It seemed sacrilegious to dismantle her life like that. It had been the same when Anastasia had died. It had been years before he'd emptied her wardrobes and dressing table. But then it had been different. He hadn't wanted to part with Anastasia's belongings. Having them around had kept her alive somehow. For a long time after her death, and before going to bed at night, he would open a cupboard and run his hands through her dresses, holding the smooth fabrics against his face, breathing in her sweet, sensual fragrance. One night, when he had thought the children were asleep, Damson had crept up on him and asked him what he was doing. She had stood in the doorway, her head tilted to one side, looking at him as though he were quite mad. "'You should throw everything away,' she'd said matter-of-factly. "'Or burn it. Casper and I can make a bonfire for you.' He could scarcely believe what he was hearing. Seven years old and she was offering to burn the few tangible keepsakes they had of their mother. The cruelty of her words had horrified him. "'Why are you being so disgustingly insensitive, damson?' he had asked. She hadn't answered, just stared at him until he closed the wardrobe door. He had told the twins that no amount of tears would bring their mother back, and he could not recall seeing either Casper or damson cry for her, not even at the funeral, when they had stood beside him beneath the hot summer sun, perfectly composed, their dry-eyed gaze on their mother's coffin as they held hands, united by something that had excluded him. He crossed the dusty wooden floor to the narrow staircase that led back to a short, unlit passageway, then on to the library, where a secret door opens to the right of the fireplace. It was this that he'd shown Ned that morning. The little lad's eyes had grown as large as habcaps when Gabriel had shown him the hidden handle that made the lower half of the bookcase swing open. "'Where does it go?' Ned had asked, peering cautiously into the darkness. It goes up to the tower you can see from the front of the house. Will you take me to see it, please? I'll be very good. If you promise to take care where you put your feet, Gabriel had told him, as he dipped his head and led the way. It's as black as pitch, so stay close to me. Are there any spiders? Lots. Big ones. Enormous and wearing hobnail boots and carrying sawn off shotguns. So mind you don't look them in the eye or they'll have you for breakfast. He'd enjoyed seeing the look on the lad's face as he tried to figure out how much to believe and it had made him spin even more yarns of mysterious intrigue of ghosts who lived in the tower, shook their chains and slammed doors at the dead of night. All nonsense, of course, but it was what children mapped up. 
when he'd looked through the kitchen window first thing that morning and had seen Ned's face staring back at him from the camper van. He had acted on a rare impulse and gone outside to see if the boy wanted to go round the house. He knew now that it had been a mistake to encourage him to go against his mother's rule that he wasn't to leave the van without her permission. But it had seemed harmless at the time. She'd been sound asleep and it had seemed better to let her enjoy a lion while her son had a bit of fun. Which he had. He'd been thrilled by the secret passageway and had loved the tower, asking politely to be held up high so that he could look at the view. It had been ages since Gabriel had been to the tower and it had looked worse than he had remembered it. The last time he'd ventured up there had been to let out a bird that had got in through a broken window. Droppings were still stuck to the floor and walls. As children, Casper and Damson had regularly holed up in the tower. Jonah had never been allowed in. Even when Val had intervened, they'd refused him entry. He's a stupid baby, they'd yelled through the door. And we're not having him in here with us. He'll spoil what we're doing. Back in the library and shutting the secret door behind him, Gabriel sighed. So many memories contained in one house. Some good, some not so good, and some plain awful. Perhaps if he could get rid of some of the rubbish from the house, he might cleanse it of the memories he would rather forget. Selective memory via a damn good spring cleaning. That's what he needed. When he'd been widowed for the second time, he had imagined he would more than cope with all this domestic malarkey. Nothing to it, he had thought, so long as he could boil himself an egg and remember to fill the washing machine once a week. But he hadn't bargained on things going wrong, or fiddly, time-consuming jobs piling up until they had the better of him. He cursed under his breath that the Costello woman hadn't accepted his offer. Now she and her son were gone. Well, good riddance, coming here and cadging off him for free. Pah! Chapter 18 Clara had hoped to prove Mr Liberty wrong, but so far her search had revealed that Deacon's Bridge was a laundrette-free zone, just as he had said. It hadn't been a complete waste of time, though. She now had the lie of the land and knew that there was a modest supermarket a short distance from the market square where they could stock up on supplies. Ho-hum, she said to Ned as they circled the market square one last time, the rain coming down harder still and the long wiper blades swishing across the windscreen. I guess this is one of those rare occasions when I'll have to admit defeat. Perhaps the next campsite we stay at will have a washing machine we can use. Shall we get the shopping done now? Then can we go to the Mermaid Cafe for lunch? Good thinking, and while we're there we'll make our plans. We'll look at the map and see if we can find a campsite we like the sound of. Oh, and something else we need to do before we leave. We must buy a large notebook and some postcards. Taking the next left, Clara told Ned about her idea that they should keep a diary. He liked the sound of this. Oh, can we buy some new crayons, please? She smiled. What was it with children and crayons? It didn't matter how many packets you bought them, they could never have enough new ones. From the moment Ned had been old enough to grasp a crayon between his fingers, he turned into a stationary fiend. At home, he was forever setting out his stash of felt-tip pens, rubbers, paper clips and pads of paper. Her mother claimed that Clara had been the same as a child, except her collection had boasted several hundred pencil sharpeners. Apparently, she had always been striving for the ultimate sharp point. I think the budget will stretch to that, she said. I'm going to draw Mr Liberty in his castle. 
Steady on, Ned. This is a diary we're writing, not a horror story. And next I'll draw the secret passageway and the tower he showed me, Ned said enthusiastically. He told me it was full of spiders, but I didn't see any. He also said they wore boots and had guns, but I know he was joking. Spiders aren't big enough to carry guns, are they, Mummy? They might need to be living with a man like Mr Liberty. Right, here we are. And thank the Lord it's free parking if we're only here for an hour. Life just gets better and better, Ned. The supermarket was a small independent one that Clara had never heard of. Built of local stone and tinted glass, it was conspicuous among the older buildings that surrounded it. They dashed through the rain from the van to the front of the store, grabbed a trolley and made a start. But with Ned at the helm, it was only a matter of time before they crashed into someone or something. He gave the job his entire concentration, and their first target was a freezer offering two packs of chicken Kiev for the price of one, and placed inconveniently in the middle of an aisle. Next, they scored a direct hit on a large wire basket of Walker's crisps. And finally, coming into the home straight through wines and spirits, they rammed a trolley being pushed by a long-faced man in an expensive suit. Miraculously, they arrived at the checkout relatively unscathed and with everything they'd gone in for except the notebook and crayons. There were only two checkouts in use, so they joined the one with the smallest queue. To Clara's embarrassment, the long-faced man pulled in behind them. She noticed that his trolley contained a dozen bottles of champagne that was on special offer. For a champagne Charlie, he looked wildly out of place. Come on, he muttered irritably after a few minutes. He tapped an expensively shod foot impatiently. What's the hold-up? The question was directed at nobody in particular, and Clara had no intention of answering it. Instead, she finished loading their shopping onto the conveyor belt and looked at the woman in front of her. She was in her mid to late seventies, Clara reckoned, and was wearing the type of felt hat Clara's grandmother used to wear. She looked upset and was glancing from the checkout girl to the purse in her trembling hands. She said something that Clara didn't catch. In response, an overplucked eyebrow hitched itself skyward. You what? Whatever the old woman had said, it wasn't getting her anywhere, and the girl, a sullen piece of work dressed in a pink and white overall, drummed her sparkly false nails on the till and rolled her eyes at Clara as if to say, Got a right one here. Will you please get a move on, the suit demanded from behind Clara. Unlike most people around here in Hicksville, I don't have all day to waste. Cue rage, thought Clara with disgust. She left Ned scaling the side of their trolley and went to see if she could help. What's the problem? she asked the checkout girl. Search me, the daft old bat's not making any sense. Clara turned to the older woman. Can I help? A pale, anxious face, brimming with confusion and distress, looked at Clara. Trembling hands showed her the snap-fastened purse. It was empty. Oh, Lord, thought Clara, now what? Oh, for heaven's sake, this is ridiculous. Will somebody do something? Clara turned and smiled sweetly at the suit. For a start, you could try piping down, mate. No, better still, take your bargain-priced bubbly and go and join the other queue. He stared at her furiously. And you should try keeping your brat under control. He stepped on my foot three times since I've been standing here. She did the adult thing, poked her tongue out at him, then turned back to the woman and her empty purse. How much is it? she asked the girl on the till. How much is what? 
This customer's bill, she said slowly with sarcastic emphasis. Please do stop me if I'm going too fast for you. It's £3.17, the girl pouted. Goodness, a king's ransom. Dinging into her bag, Clara offered her credit card. Right, stick it on this and put my shopping through as fast as your helpful little fingers can manage it, okay? Stuck up, bitch, the girl muttered as Clara turned to explain the situation to the woman. She was looking even more confused and distressed. There's no need to worry, Clara said. It's been taken care of. I've paid it for you. But her words seemed to add to the poor woman's anxiety and she started speaking so fast that Clara couldn't understand what she was saying. Here, she said slowly, this is your bag of shopping. Will you be all right now? But the head shook again and a hand squeezed Clara's arm. After an agonising pause, she said, You with me? You want me to come with you? A smile of relief and a nod confirmed that she had understood correctly. But where to? Another chaotic burst of words brought forth no further illumination. Do you want me to take you home? Clara didn't understand the answer, but after she'd bagged up her shopping, paid for it and insisted that she, not Ned, push the trolley, the three left the store. It was slow going as their newly acquired friend had something wrong with one of her legs and took each step with the aid of a stick as if she was picking her way through a minefield. They had run out of time in the car park, so Clara explained to the woman that they would have to drive to wherever it was that she lived. Getting directions was going to prove interesting, though. Then she had the idea of asking the woman to write down her, her dress. But when she gave the woman a piece of paper and a pen, it became evident that her hands lacked the dexterity to hold anything firmly. Nevertheless, after she had made a huge effort, Clara read the word stroke. Ah, so that was it. She asked the woman where she wanted to go. It took a long time, but second best and son appeared. Following the woman's hand signals, they drove back into the market square, past the bookshop and the Deacon's Bridge Arms, then took a side road called Millstone Row. And there, on the corner, they saw a double-fronted shop called Second Best. There was just room to park in front of it, and through the windows, Clara could see an Aladdin's cave of bric-a-brac and second-hand furniture. Seeing that her passenger was struggling to release her seatbelt, Clara did it for her, then called through to Ned. OK, you can get out now. They entered the shop, their arrival heralded by a tinkling bell. It was jam-packed with corner cupboards, wardrobes and three-piece suites. There were coffee tables, bookcases, lampstands, mirrors, ornaments and any number of chairs. Dining chairs, kitchen chairs, garden chairs, even a rocking chair, which drew Ned like a magnet. And bar stools. Despite the quantity of furniture and knick-knacks crammed into the confined space, there was a surprising degree of order to the shop and Vivaldi's Four Seasons was playing on a radio. I'll be right with you, a man's voice told them. I'm just on my knees with Des O'Connor and Val Dunican, and how many blokes do you know who admit to that? Before she had set eyes on the voice's owner, Clara had decided she would like him. He sounded so cheerful, a real blast of fresh air. The old woman took a few painfully slow steps through the shop and disappeared behind an old gas cooker. Hello, Mum. You back already with Samson? You found you all right, then. What's wrong? This was progress, thought Clara. They'd found the sun. 
After a torrent of jumbled words, he appeared with his mother. In his arms, he carried a cardboard box full of old LPs. Clara explained who she was and what had happened in the supermarket. At the man's side, his mother kept muttering something that sounded like, Bunny, blow bunny, and twice showed him her empty purse. Then she started to cry. Her son placed the box of records on the floor and put his arm around her. Hey, it's okay, Mum, it doesn't matter. You took the wrong purse, that was all. It could have happened to anyone. Now why don't you sit down and I'll make you a cup of tea. Helping her out of her coat, he hung it on a convenient coat stand and settled her into a chocolate brown leatherette sofa. Clara was struck by his kindness and patience and that he didn't seem at all embarrassed that his mother was crying in front of a stranger. He was well over six feet tall and struck Clara as very much the gentle giant. She put him somewhere in his mid-fifties. He was overweight, but his bulk seemed to emphasise his naturally warm-hearted manner. Would you excuse me for a minute, he said to Clara when the worst of the tears were over. I'll just go and put the kettle on for a brew. In his absence, Clara joined his mother on the sofa. The woman reached out to Clara's arm, squeezed it as she had in the supermarket, and eventually produced Bessie, name Bessie. I'm pleased to meet you, Bessie. We forgot to introduce ourselves earlier, didn't we? What with all those rude people at the checkout. My name's Clara, and in the rocking chair is my son, Ned. The anxious expression gave way to a smile. Juggly poi, juggly pies. Juggly poi, Clara repeated, hoping for enlightenment. She's saying he's a lovely boy and he has lovely eyes. The son was back. He set a mug of tea on a small reproduction sherry table beside his mother. even rustled up a coaster from somewhere. I'm Archie Merriman, by the way, he said, holding out a large, strong hand to Clara, and I'm extremely grateful to you. My mother had a stroke not so long ago, and the words don't always come out as they should. So I understand. I had what I thought was a brilliant idea of getting her to write things down, only I didn't realise it would be so difficult for her. The stroke did its worst down your right side, Mum, didn't it? He said, turning to his mother to include her in the conversation. In the silence that followed, Clara realised that the music had stopped, as had the creaking of the rocking chair. She looked to see where Ned was and located him on the other side of the shop, where he was inspecting a commode. What's this for, Mummy? he asked, his voice echoing slightly. I'll tell you later. She glanced back at the owner of the shop, who was smiling. Children, she said with a shrug, questions, 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 and at the least appropriate moment, he shooks bury you, Barry said. Clara looked to Archie for help. He interpreted without a second's hesitation. She said he looks like you. Yes, poor lad. There's no disputing his pedigree. You don't mind him poking around, do you? Of course not. It's good to see someone enjoying themselves. He's a grand little chap. Are you here visiting Deaconsbridge? Is it that obvious we're interlopers? I thought we were blending in rather nicely. He laughed. I've been here more than 20 years and I still stick out like a sore thumb. But where are my manners? I should have offered you a drink. What can I get you? That's kind, but no thanks. I've promised the chip of the old block lunch in the Mermaid Cafe. Ned had moved from the commode to a coffee table where he'd found a Star Wars jigsaw. 
No, don't tip it out, Ned, she called, seeing him ready to settle in for the afternoon. There were enough things here to keep even the most hyperactive child amused. She stood up to go. Goodbye, Bessie. It was lovely meeting you. You take care now, won't you? Then to Archie Merriman, she said, I know it's a cheek, but would it be all right if I left our van outside your shop while we have something to eat? We won't be very long. Sure, it's the least I can do for you, sweetheart. Enjoy your lunch. The bell tinkled merrily behind them as they left, and while they waited for the traffic to pass so that they could cross the road to go back to the market square, Clara thought how nice Archie Merriman was. A juggly man, she said to herself with a smile. It's beginning to feel like home, this place, Clara said to Ned, when they were sitting at the table they had used yesterday and had been served by the same waitress, whose name was Shirley. Why couldn't that lady speak properly? Ned asked, while they waited for their food. She told him that Bessie Merriman had had a stroke and tried to explain what that was without frightening Ned. It can happen when you're young, but usually when you get older. He thought about this, tracing a finger along the squares on the checked tablecloth. Will it happen to Nana and Grandad? He said, when his finger reached the salt cellar and knocked it over. I hope not, but we never know what's round the corner for any of us. It's what life is all about. Why was she crying? Well, in the supermarket, people weren't treating her very kindly. The man in the smart suit probably doesn't think about anyone but himself and the young girl on the till was probably worrying about what she ought to wear that night to go out. To them, poor Bessie was a nuisance who they couldn't be bothered to understand or help. She knew that, and it was horribly embarrassing for her and made her very upset. I didn't like that man. Is that why you kept stepping on his foot? He looked at her coyly from beneath his long lashes. I thought so, you little rascal. The cafe was even busier today, and it was a while before the waitress brought them their meal. She explained that it was always like this when the weather turned wet. It brings the walkers down from the hills and moors in search of something warm to stick their ribs together, she said. It'll be crazy like this for some days. I thought you said the weather was breaking at the weekend. What went wrong with the forecast? She wiped her hands on her red overall. I was only out by a couple of days. At any rate, we have our own climate round here. We're a law unto ourselves. It means that, like any true deaconite, she makes it up as she goes along. The three turned to see who had spoken. Ah, and what would you know about the weather, Archie Merriman? Are those flowers for me by any chance? He gave her a wink. Another bunch, another time, Shirley. Mind if I join you for a couple of seconds? I won't keep you, he said to Clara. No, no, of course not. Please sit down. What's wrong? Nothing. It's just that I forgot to pay you back for my mother's shopping. And I also wanted to give you these to say thank you for what you did. He handed the flowers across the table. Clara was touched. I don't know what to say except thank you. They're lovely. She breathed in the heady scent of the purple freesias. Mmm, wonderful. But there was no need for you to go to all this trouble. I'll have to disagree with you on that point, and this is for you, Ned. From a carrier bag that Clara hadn't noticed until now, he pulled out the Star Wars jigsaw Ned had been looking at in the shop. Oh, thank you, he said, putting down his knife and fork with a clatter and kneeling up on his chair for a better look. This is very generous of you, Clara said, but really, 
No buts, sweetheart. Definitely no buts. From his shirt pocket, he retrieved a roll of money. Now then, how much was my mother's shopping? Glory be, do you always carry that amount of money around with you? In my trade, cash is the best currency. Well, you can put it back in your pocket. I don't need reimbursing. He frowned. That arrangement really doesn't suit me. I'm used to paying my whack. It was hardly anything. I was just pleased I was there to help. He turned to Ned, who, while tracing the outline of Luke Skywalker on the lid of the jigsaw box with a finger, was working on a long strand of spaghetti. His cheeks were sucked in hard and his lips were pasted with bolognese sores. Ned, you have a peach of a mother. You take good care of her, won't you? Clara laughed. Please stop it. You're embarrassing him to say nothing of what you're doing to me. In that case, I'd better go. He stood up abruptly. Disappointed to have him leave so soon, she said. Have you left your mother on her own in the shop? No, Samson's with her now. He got held up in traffic and didn't make it in time to fetch Mum from the supermarket as we'd arranged. I'm trying to give her as much independence as possible, but it's not easy. Anyway, enough of the moaning from me. Are you leaving Deaconsbridge today or will we be lucky enough to see you around town for a few days yet? If I can find a suitable campsite nearby, there's every chance you might see us again. Our plans are fairly flexible. We're going to see the Mermaid Cavern, Ned piped up. And I've got a mermaid of my own. She lives in my pocket. Do you want to see her? A mermaid in your pocket? Now this I have to see. He watched as Ned dug around inside his pockets. You know the cavern's not open yet, don't you? He said to Clara. Yes, Shirley gave us the bad news yesterday. Mummy, Ned said, his voice wavering and his face crumpling. I can't find Mummy. His lower lip wobbled. He got down from his chair, came round to Clara and burrowed his tomatoey face in her lap. I've lost Mummy, he wailed. Chapter 19 Ned was inconsolable. He had only ever mislaid Mermy once before during an overnight stay with Nana and Grandad when Clara was away on business. He was so distraught that his grandparents had ransacked the house, combed every square inch of the garden and turned the car inside out. When in desperation they emptied the kitchen bin, they had found Mermy hiding inside a crushed tea bag box. Nobody knew how she had got there but her reappearance had instantly dried Ned's tears. Clara knew now that if she was going to calm her son, she would have to convince him that, no matter what it took, she would find Mermy. With most of the occupants of the crowded cafe looking sympathetically in their direction, Clara lifted Ned onto her lap. She took a paper napkin from the holder on the table and wiped his eyes. It's okay, Ned, she soothed. We'll find her. Don't worry. She probably slipped out of your pocket in the supermarket. Or she might be back at my shop, Archie said, bending down now so that he was eye to eye with Ned. But Ned was far from consoled. Someone might have taken her, he whimpered, his breath catching in shaky gulps. He buried his face in Clara's shoulder. Shirley came over. You've been upsetting the little boy with your ugly mug, Archie, she asked. Clara explained what had happened. Oh, dearie me, Shirley said. 
Nothing for it but to retrace your steps. Where have you been today? Ned peeled himself away from Clara's shoulder. Mummy, I think I know where she is. You do? He sniffed loudly. I left her at Mr Liberty's house. Clara didn't know whether to be relieved or disappointed. A return visit to Mermaid House and its splenetic owner. Just how much fun could a girl cope with? Are you sure? Another messy sniff and a nod. I was playing with her at the table when you were talking to Mr Liberty. Clara vaguely remembered Ned inspecting Mermaid with a magnifying glass. And you haven't seen her since, she clarified. Not in Winnie, perhaps? I don't think so. Well, that looks like it's settled, Archie said. Where does this Mr Liberty live, by the way? Will he have far to go? He lives in a castle, Ned said, wiping his eyes with the backs of his hands. He has a tower and I've been up it. And he has a secret passageway. This wouldn't be Mr Liberty of Mermaid House, Hollow Edge Moor, would it? asked Shirley. You know him, Clara said. Probably safe to say that most folk know him, Shirley answered. He comes in here every Friday lunchtime. None of the others, she tilted her head in the direction of the kitchen, will serve him. I'm, a, I'm the only one thick-skinned enough. The man never has a civil thing to say for himself. If I was being polite, I'd say he was a poor old fool who was losing his marbles. But if I was being honest, I'd say he was a disagreeable old crosspatch who ought to learn some manners. You don't think he's just a lonely old man who's a touch eccentric? Clara wondered why she felt the need to defend him. Try serving him in here when you rushed off your feet and he's banging his spoon on the table to grab your attention. She's a sweet, tolerant little thing, isn't she? Archie said when Shirley had moved on to clear another table. So what's your opinion of Mr Liberty? If he's the same chap I ran into at the hospital the other day, I'd say he's a man of elusive charm and has a way to go in the tact and diplomacy stays. What will you do? Go up to Hollow Edge Moor now and see if you, the little lad's toy is there? Or would you like a hand checking out places closer to home first? Touched again by his thoughtfulness, Clara said, Ned seems pretty sure that he's left Mermy at Mermaid House, so we'll start our search there. If we draw a blank... She added, lowering her voice, not wanting to dash Ned's hopes. We'll come back and have a look at the supermarket. Thanks for the offer of help, though. I'll give the shop a good going over as well, just in case. If I find it, I'll put it somewhere safe for you. Anyway, I'd better be getting back. Take care now and thank you again for what you did for Bessie. It had stopped raining by the time they left the cafe and crossed the market square to where they had left Winnie. Through the window of second best, Clara could see Archie talking to an enormous young man with a pair of weightlifter's shoulders. As she started the engine, they both turned. In response to Archie's wave, she waved back and pipped the horn. Right, she said to Ned. Fingers crossed that Mermy is where you think she is. And fingers crossed, she thought, joining the flow of traffic, that Mr Liberty hasn't done something unspeakable to her. And there you go again, she told herself. She was bad-mouthing a man she scarcely knew. Perhaps she ought to stop and ask herself why he was such a misery. What had happened to him to make him so unlovable? Why had he lost his respect for and pleasure in the world around him? And why was he deliberately isolating himself from it and those who should have given him the most reward, his children? 
Having experienced nothing but love and support from her own close-knit family and been lucky enough to have such wonderful friends, Clara couldn't imagine what it would feel like to be so alone. As for cutting herself off from Ned, she might just as well consider lopping off a limb. Before she conceived Ned, she had never been one of those naturally maternal women who go all gooey at the merest glimpse of a mother care catalogue. Not once had she been conscious of her biological clock ticking away, its indubitable message that time waits for no woman who wants to start a family. Perhaps it was because she'd always thought that she would get married before she had a child. And with her not being married, or in any hurry to be so, she had not felt the lack of a baby in her life. But then she had met Todd, and she began to think that marriage might be something she could entertain. Maybe even children. Being in love had made her think and act quite differently. She'd thrown caution to the wind and tripped headlong into a passionate affair with a man recently separated from his wife. If she'd been at home, her friends and family would have told her she was mad to get involved with a man on the rebound. But she was not, and she gave no thought to the consequences. Todd Mason Angel was his name, and he was as attractive as his name sounded. He was seven years older than her, and had a smile that lit up his face and softened the lines around his mouth. He was from Wichita, Kansas, and had worked for Phoenix at their headquarters in Wilmington since graduating from Harvard. He was ambitious and dedicated to his career, but he wasn't ruthless and hard-nosed, as his position within the company might have implied. He was honest and upfront, and never hid the facts from her about his marriage, which had recently broken down or the emotional tie he still felt to the woman he had been married to for nearly ten years, and who was the mother of the two daughters he adored. Clara had insisted they kept their affair secret at work, because she didn't want anyone to accuse her of getting on by sleeping with someone so senior. He'd gone along with this, but she had always felt that it was less out of respect to her than because he hoped that one day he would be reconciled with his wife. To put it bluntly, she had known all along that she was playing with fire and that she would have no one to blame but herself should he end their relationship. Ironically, the day of reconciliation came 24 hours after Clara discovered that she was pregnant. She and Todd had arranged to go away for a long weekend, during which she planned to tell him her news. On the day they were due to set off, he had come into her office an hour before lunch closed the door behind him and told her that Gail had phoned him to say that she wanted to give their marriage another try. Though he had tried his best to let Clara down gently and to conceal his happiness, the thud with which her heart had hit the floor had rocked her world and she had known she could never tell him she was pregnant. She'd smiled bravely and said she wished him well, that if there was a chance of his marriage being put back together he had to take it. He owed it to himself and his children. I'll never forget what we had, Clara, he had said, rising from his chair, already wanting to get on with rebuilding his marriage. He added, I've only ever loved two women, and you're one of them. I just hope you don't feel that I've used you, because I haven't. I'm really not that kind of a man. With an airy wave of a hand, she'd said, Go on, get out of here. You've a family to get back to. No hard feelings, then. You know us Brits, stiff up a lip right to the finishing line. 
He leaned over her desk and kissed her forehead. I'm sorry, Clara. I wish we didn't have to end like this. Another shrug. Hey, it was always going to have to end. We both knew that. And I'm really pleased about you and Gail. Now, let me get on with some work. She'd wanted him gone from her office. A moment longer and her resolve would have been shattered. Much better to stay in control and nurse a shattered heart that no one could see. Some might say that she had behaved heroically, but she saw it differently. Such was her love for Todd that she knew she had to sacrifice her own happiness for his by letting him go. She had spent the rest of that day going through the motions at work until eventually she gave up and went home early, claiming she was feeling sick. It was true, she did feel nauseous. For the next two months her morning sickness was so bad that the weight fell off her. A month later she returned home. Louise was the first person she told and, predictably, she was horrified. But no amount of questioning would make Clara reveal who the father was. She tried lying to preserve Todd's anonymity, but made it a poor job of it. Louise said, Don't give me any of that, it was just a casual fling business. I know better than anyone that you're not into one-night stands, Clara Costello. This man must have meant something to you, or why would you want to keep his child? But Clara held firm. It was the one area in her friendship with Louise and the rest of the gang that remained a closed subject. Much as she loved Louise, Clara knew that she was a blabbermouth and would be sure to tell David, who would tell Guy, and before long the whole of the Phoenix Pharmaceuticals would know that Todd Mason Angel, the the company's newly appointed finance director, was the father of Clara Costello's baby. And every time Clara's mother said that Ned had a smile straight from the angels, she had no idea how close to the truth she was. Todd's could warm the coldest heart, and Ned had inherited it. Now, as she drove over the cattle grid to Mermaid House, Clara hoped that Ned's face would soon be its normal smiling self when he was reunited with his pride and joy. Whether Mr Liberty would be smiling when he saw them again was another matter altogether. When Gabriel looked out of the kitchen window as he washed his hands at the sink and saw the camper van drive through the archway, his face broke into a wide, sardonic smile. So she was back, was she? The insolent little shrew had a price after all. Well, now they were in for some fun. He dried his hands on the back of his trousers and went to meet them. Looks as if you can't keep away from me, Miss Costello, he said, as she climbed down from the driver's seat. But I knew you'd reconsider that it would come down to a simple act of bartering. So, what figure have you in mind? But his words went unanswered. Ned came barrelling up to him. Mr Liberty, have you got my mermaid? Is she in the kitchen where I left her on the table? And then he understood why they were back. Not to help him, but to help themselves. You'd better go and take a look, he said to the boy. You know the way. But be careful not to touch or disturb anything of mine, he called after Ned as the little boy shot inside the house. Embarrassed at his mistake and staring down at the cracked leather of his shoes, he said, It seems I just made a colossal fool of myself, haven't I? His voice was mute with despondency and his shoulders sagged. Clara felt a pang of sadness for him. How hard he made life for himself, she thought. And what a contrast he was to Archie Merriman, 
who would go out of his way to help anyone. Perhaps only a mild fool of yourself, she said softly. But tell me, just as a matter of interest, when was the last time you bought anybody flowers? He raised one his one-eyed gaze. I beg your pardon? It's a simple enough question, but what I'm really getting at is, when was the last time you made a spontaneous gesture of kindness to another person and felt good about it? Because if you did it more often, I'm sure you wouldn't be in the position you are now, bullying a stranger into helping you. If you were nicer, people would be queuing up with offers of help. Are you saying that if I was nicer, you would want to help me? I was talking generally about you being nice to your fellow man. I'm not interested in talking generally, and as for my fellow man, don't split hairs. Why not? You are. Look, Mr Liberty, stop being so quarrelsome. Be more gracious and see where it gets you. For instance, instead of blackmailing me this morning by saying I owed you a favour, you should have just asked me politely if I would help you. As it was, you got my back up. I suspect that's what you do to people all the time, isn't it? A man should be allowed to be himself, he said stubbornly, drawing in his breath and pulling himself up to his full height. I couldn't agree with you more, but some common courtesy wouldn't go amiss. The sound of Ned's voice made them both turn. Mummy, he cried, I found Mummy. She was on the table just where I left her. He came running towards them and threw himself against Clara who scooped him up and hugged him. You see, she wanted to say to Mr Liberty, it doesn't take much to be happy, does it? Then a more dangerous thought occurred to her. What effort, what real effort on her part, would it take to make Mr Liberty happy? Why had it been so simple earlier today to help Archie Merriman's mother in her hour of need, but so difficult now to help this pugnacious old man? Okay, his demands were on a different scale, and he might not seem such a worthy cause, but who was she to judge? Here she was lecturing him on how to be more gracious, so why wasn't she leading by example? Because she was on holiday, his problems weren't hers. But it would still be a holiday, she argued with herself, and Ned would enjoy himself just as much here as somewhere new. Besides, if she agreed to help him for a week... How big a hole in their schedule would that make? On the upside, it would be a week of earning some money as well as landing themselves free lodging. And by then, the mermaid cavern would be open. She thought of what Ron and Eileen had told her about their lifestyle, which they so enjoyed, about taking each day as it came, of rising to the myriad challenges that crossed their path and of always being the richer for having experienced them. But it was a decision that couldn't be made in isolation. Still holding Ned, whose legs were wrapped tightly round her hips, she whispered in his ear, How do you feel about staying on here for a short while? Will we still go to the mermaid in the cave? His lips tickled her ear. Of course. He nodded and smiled. She lowered him to the ground. Mr Liberty, I'll do you a deal. I'll give you one week of my precious time, and in return you have to agree to certain conditions. The principal one being that you must promise me you will try to be less disagreeable, so that when Ned and I have gone, you will be enough of a human being to attract further offers of assistance. How does that sound? Sounds to me as though it's a deal heavily weighted in your favour, 
What are the other conditions? She smiled archly. We'll sort those out as we go along. For now, though, I need to hook the van up to an electricity supply, for which I'd like to make it clear you will not be charging me. I also need water. Anything else? Yes, I want an up-to-date copy of the Yellow Pages. I'm not having any contract cleaners in, I told you that. You do the job or no one does it. It's a skip I'm after. My guess is you have a lifetime's rubbish laying about this place and ditching it will be the only way forward. Well, don't just stand there. Let's get about our business. I'm not going to regret this, am I? Let's hope that neither of us does. Chapter 20 It was raining again as Jonah drove home from school, the light already fading. Other than a stack of essays to mark on the rise of the Nazi party in the 1920s, he was looking forward to a quiet, uneventful evening. Supper and the pleasure of listening to the latest recording of Mailer's Symphony No. 5 was all he had in mind. Despite the dreary weather, he was in a relaxed and happy mood. The day had been constructive and rewarding. With the exception of a couple of students, he was pleased with his GCSE students and had high hopes for them when they sat their exams next term. If he could keep them motivated, crank them up another gear and make them believe that education was power, he reckoned he could get the best history results Dick High had had in years. Already a large number of his students were saying that they wanted to take the subject on into the sixth form, and it was particularly gratifying to know that within his short time as head of the department, he turned it round so dramatically. His predecessor had long since lost the plot. He'd grown tired of battling against cuts, damning league tables and hostile Ofsted recommendations. Worse than this, he had lost the will to cope with disaffected pupils who, once they knew they had the upper hand, could grind a vulnerable teacher into the ground faster than a pile driver. Last autumn, a group in Year 11 had tried it on with Jonah during his first week. They'd sat in the back row with their feet on their desks, their ties no more than a stubby two inches long, passing around copies of Loaded and FHM. They had pretended to ignore him as they shared with the rest of the class the details of the previous night's excitement on the estate where they lived. Modern world history had as much relevance to them as the FTSE index to their future gyrochecks, or so they thought. Warfare, Jonah had announced, slipping off his jacket and putting it on the back of his chair. Anyone up for it? Their attention caught, just for a second, he wrote on the whiteboard. No man's land, war of attrition and going over the top. He then asked for a volunteer, specifically from the back row, to come and draw a rough map of the estate he and his mates lived on. Don't be shy, ladies and gentlemen, he said, his eyes resting on one lad in particular. His name was Jace O'Dowd, and Jonah had had nothing but bad reports of him since he had arrived at Dick High. Like a lot of the boys in his class, he wore his hair intimidatingly short, but with the most extraordinary gelled-up quiff at the front. He gazed instantly at Jonah, tucked a half-smoked cigarette behind his ear and said, I thought this was a bleeding history lesson. Maps is for geography. The others urged him on. Go on, Jace, they chorused. Show Sir where we live. 
Yeah, and don't forget to make it look pretty. We don't want to be shamed with Sir thinking we're not as lardy dar as him. Whistles and chants accompanied Jace as he lumbered to the front of the class. He snatched the marker pen out of Jonah's hand and drew two large rectangles facing each other, separated by a thin strip. With stabs and slashes of the pen on the whiteboard, he marked off little boxes within the two rectangles. For that extra artistic touch, can you put arrows where you and your friends live, please? Jonah asked. Just as he knew they would be, they were all congregated in one rectangle. And who lives here? To the side of the other rectangle, Jace drew a skull and crossbones and wrote underneath it, the tossers. Okay, so tell me what this space between the two rectangles is. It's the friggin' road, sir. What do you think it was? Durr. So, would I be right in thinking that when you're in the mood to give someone a good kicking, you have to cross it? Jay smirked. Yeah, got it in one. You're not as stupid as you look, sir, are you? Well, Jace, you'll be delighted to know that the tactics you use to exert your reign of terror on your neighbours are based on the same rules employed by the generals who devised trench warfare on the Western Front in 1915. Taking the pen from him, Jonah drew a German flag over one rectangle and a Union Jack over the other, then an arrow from the words No Man's Land to the road Jace had drawn. Now, one more job for you, Jace. While I draw a slightly more detailed map of Belgium and northern France, can you rig up the TV and video for me? A loud cheer went up. What are we watching, sir? Hot mummers, spank my... I'm afraid not. You'll have to save that for your roleplay sessions in drama. For now, though, you're going to watch Blackadder Goes Forth. By the end of the lesson, he knew he had achieved what he'd set out to do. He'd got their attention. It was all the start he needed. Six months on and a class of low achievers who had long been dubbed in the staff room as tomorrow's social misfits could now make a reasonable fist of an essay and display an above-average interest in a subject they had previously dismissed, just as they had been unfairly dismissed. Skirting round the centre of town, he swung the car into Church Brow and took the steep, cobbled road slowly. A row of cars had parked on the right-hand side. As he drew near to his cottage at the top of the narrow road next to the church, the easy-going evening he had planned evaporated. Outside his front door, in a flashy electric blue Maserati, was his brother, Casper. What was he doing here? Jonah parked alongside the cottage, gathered up his old leather briefcase from the back seat of his dilapidated Ford Escort and approached the immaculate sports car, the latest in an ever-changing range. This one, even a trade, must have set his brother back a small fortune. The number plate alone, Casper won. It probably cost him more than Jonah's heap of mobile rust when it had been showroom new. The only thing that Jonah and his brother had in common was their love of classical music, although Casper's penchant for the pretentiously esoteric works of some latter-day composers was where their commonality divided. It was a piece of this shrill, discordant music that Jonah could now hear as he tapped on the driver's window to attract his brother's attention. Casper's head was resting against the smooth cream leather of the headrest and his eyes were closed as his fingers conducted an imaginary orchestra lined up along the dashboard. The electric window slid down. 
You're getting wet, brother dear, Casper said, above the excruciating ting-ping and scrape. Could be something to do with the inclement weather. Are you coming in or are you happy to stay out here, showing off your new car to my neighbours? Casper gave him a look of disdain. You mean these little shacks are occupied by real people? Heavens, whatever next? Jonah let them in. He shed his leather jacket and hung it up in the understairs cupboard, then took his brother through to the kitchen. He knew Casper hated his house, that he found the old weaver's cottage cramped and claustrophobic. Casper lived alone in a stark loft apartment in Manchester that was a temple of clean lines and minimalism. To Jonah's knowledge, he never entertained there, never encouraged visitors. The only time Jonah had been allowed in had been when Casper wanted to show it off. He had come away feeling that whatever his brother had paid to live in such superficial splendour, it wasn't money well spent. He watched his brother prowl uneasily round the tiny, low-ceilinged kitchen, his cold grey eyes seeking out the least offensive spot on which to stand. He was dressed in an expensive dark blue suit with a crisp white shirt, a red silk tie and black lace-up shoes. His fine hair was a light brown version of Michael Heseltine's and showed signs of grey just above the ears. The contrast between the two brothers could not have been greater. Jonah wore baggy corduroy trousers, a loose-fitting shirt with the odd splash of paint on the shoulder and a tie he'd owned for more years than he cared to recall. His dark brown hair was thick and wavy, the opposite of Casper's smooth, well-cut locks. The kids at school often teased Jonah that his tasselled mop made him look like David Ginola on a bad hair day. I see you haven't got around to doing anything about the state of this kitchen, Casper remarked, still prowling and trying to avoid hitting his head on the pans hanging from one of the beams. He came to a stop in front of a bookcase crammed with paperbacks and CDs. Giving the hand-painted cupboards a dismissive glance, he added, it really is the last distasteful word in folksy charm. You should gut it and start again. Maybe extend it into something worthwhile. Actually, Casper, this is done. Are you stopping long enough to warrant me offering you a drink? Depends what you've got. You'll have to be a lot more honey-tongued if you want anything better than instant coffee. What do I have to do for a decent glass of Chablis? Fawn all over you? No, go out and buy one. I don't have anything here of the ilk that would agree with your sensitive nose and palate. Casper gave him a pitying look. Ha ha, as droll as ever, I see. I like to keep my hand in. One never knows when one's older brother is going to come calling and wreck one's evening. You had plans. You surprised me. A night of unbridled passion with a colleague from the staff room. A listen games mistress, fresh out of college. Oh, do tell. Jonah turned his back on Casper and reached for a bottle of Merlot from the wine rack. An evening of marking essays on the rise of the Nazi party is what I had in mind, he said. Just think, if you'd been around at the time as one of Hitler's right-hand men, he might have made a go of it. He poured two glasses of wine and passed one to Casper. Casper sniffed his suspiciously, then made a great play of picking out a rogue piece of cork. Not bad, he said, giving the wine a swirl. He took a sip. Better than that acidic enamel-stripping Sauvignon you gave me last time when I was here. Argentinian, wasn't it? Chilean. Whatever. 
Did he have any idea how ridiculous he was, thought Jonah, standing here in his expensive suit, pretentiously appraising a bottle of plunk that had cost three pounds from the local supermarket. How could anyone become such a momental prat and assume such an affected air of moneyed arrogance? Sadly, affecting the right air had always been of paramount importance to his brother. Having the right credentials, knowing the right people, owning the right car, it was all part of Casper's carefully projected image. For what it was worth, Jonah suspected that Casper had become a victim of his own arrogance. He didn't have any real friends, only hangers-on. "'What are you doing here, Casper?' he asked. "'The phone not good enough for you these days?' Casper shifted position. He went and tried out a space by the old Rayburn that Jonah had bought second-hand and patiently restored. "'I've been sampling the heady delights of Deaconsbridge,' he said. "'In particular, Mainwaring's the estate agent. "'It's just as I thought. "'It's the perfect time to sell Mermaid House. "'I spoke to Mainwaring, and he's of the opinion "'that by the end of the summer the property boom will be over. "'It's now, or wait another year, maybe longer,' until things pick up again. Anything wrong in doing that? Casper narrowed his grey eyes. I told you, Jonah, we need to move sooner on this rather than later. If we let the old man stay put, the house will slide into total decline. It's bad enough as it is, but another year and God knows what the place will be like. And how do you know what state the house is in now? When was the last time you paid Dad a visit? Casper banged the glass down on the table between them, his cool, imperious manner giving way to temper. That is hardly the point. Why do you always have to be so damn picky? Can't you just accept that I'm right? God, you always wear a bloody pain in the backside. I should have known better than to come here and expect a civilised conversation with you. Jonah leaned against the sink, casually crossed one ankle over the other and considered his brother's outburst. He was used to seeing Casper flip, but this struck him as different. Usually he could keep up the act of supercilious prig for at least two glasses of wine before he launched into an attack. What was the urgency about selling Mermaid House? Had he yet again got himself into a financial mess? He decided to push. Seeing as you're in the area, he said, why not go and see Dad this evening? If it's money you're short of, he might find it in his heart to bung you a few quid. He knew his remarks would incense Casper, but he didn't care. If it got his brother out of his house, so much the better. Predictably, Casper rose to the bait. Who the hell said anything about me being short of money? That's an accusation I find vaguely absurd, coming from someone who knows nothing about business. It was a logical assumption. You've been on at me to go and see Dad and... Yes, and I'd like to know why you haven't. I've been busy. If you must know, I've arranged to see him tomorrow. This seemed to mollify Casper, and he reached for his glass again. Oh, right. Good. Well, it's about time too. Mind you, be firm with him. Don't give in to his bullying. The amusing irony of this instruction stayed with Jonah long after Casper had left. The essays dealt with, his supper coming along nicely, the mailer well into his stride. Jonah reflected on his brother's unwelcome visit. He's desperate, he concluded, stirring the pan of mushroom risotto, then adding more stock. He must be, 
to have forced himself to drink cheap plonk in a house he hated with a man he despised. Casper's need for money must be greater than it, than it had ever been, which might mean that he was even more determined than usual to get what he wanted. It was a grim prospect. Casper's scheming skullduggery over the years would make humorous reading if there wasn't always some poor soul who had lost out to his, to his ruthlessness. Lying, cheating, trampling over other people's feelings to get what he wanted, it all came quite naturally to Casper. It was a sport for him. The most breathtaking example of this had occurred two and a half years ago when Joan had unwisely and against his better judgment decided to introduce Emily to his family. He'd been putting it off for nearly six months but now that they were planning to marry it seemed only right that Val and his father should meet his future wife. Val had been forever trying to bring them together as a family and had insisted on a full liberty turnout with everyone spending the weekend at Mermaid House. Damson was in her most recent post-divorce state, and Casper came with his latest girlfriend, a model of half his age with a fake tan, whom he ignored for the entire weekend. He was much more interested in Emily. It was just what Jonah had been terrified of. Until then, he had deliberately kept Emily away from Caspar. He had even told her why. She hadn't taken him seriously, though, and had said he was being paranoid. It's you I love. Why would I be remotely interested in your brother? But that evening, during dinner, he had seen Casper working his charm on Emily, and that she was flattered by his attention. Why wouldn't she be? He was good-looking, and when he wanted to be, he was erudite and witty. He was the perfect dinner-party guest, regaling Emily with stories of Jonah growing up, telling her what a great kid brother he had been, what hilarious and companionable larks they'd had together. You make your childhood sound so idyllic, Emily had said, like something out of Swallows and Amazons. Looking across the table with his steely-eyed gaze on Jonah, Casper had said, She's right, isn't she, Jonah? We did have a glorious childhood. To have told the truth would have seemed churlish and petty, so he had said, It had its moments. Casper had laughed. Just listen to him, then. But what I don't understand, Jonah, is why the long face. Anyone would think this was a wake and not a celebration of your forthcoming nuptials with this heavenly creature. For goodness sake, cheer up. While they were getting into bed that night, Emily had said, Your brother was right. You did look miserable during dinner. Are you sure you haven't exaggerated the stories you've told me about him? Why would I do that? because you're jealous of him. Jealous? You have to be joking. He had tried to laugh off her accusation, but she had pursued the subject doggedly. You kept looking at him as though you hated him, Jonah. I've never seen you like that before. It's very worrying. You're showing me a side to you that I didn't know existed. All he could say was, you've never seen me in the bosom of my family before. He had tried to make love to her to reassure himself that her feelings for him hadn't changed, but it hadn't worked. He had been too anxious, too convinced of his own failings. Defeated, he had slept with his back to her. The next day after breakfast, Casper had suggested they treat themselves to some fresh air by going for a walk. Val said she wanted to go to church, and their father said he had more important things to do. Damson said she needed to be alone so that she could meditate and realign her aura, 
and Casper's girlfriend, who was getting the message that she was history, pouted and said she didn't have any suitable footwear. But Emily had reacted as though she had just been invited to fly to Paris for lunch. What a wonderful idea, Casper. You must have been reading my mind. A walk is exactly what I need to blow away the cobwebs. Cobwebs, Emily? Don't tell me my brother doesn't take you out enough and he's allowed you to collect cobwebs. It was no kind of joke, yet Emily seemed to find it hysterically funny. And Jonah knew that the only thing being blown away was his chance of marrying Emily. Casper and Emily strode on ahead, leaving Jonah to plod along with the sulky model who was wearing a pair of Val's boots as well as a borrowed wax jacket. Is Casper always like this? she said, pausing for the umpteenth time to catch her breath as they climbed the gentlest of slopes. She might have been racehorse thin, but she had as much stamina as a soggy rive eater. Always like what? So rude, and why don't you stop what he's doing with your girlfriend? Or are you so stupid you haven't noticed? Oh, he'd noticed all right. And if the skinny, lettuce-nibbling girl hadn't stopped every few hundred yards, Casper and Emily wouldn't have got so far ahead. Way off in the distance and in the shelter of a rocky outcrop, he could see Casper standing behind Emily, an arm over her left shoulder, as he supposedly pointed out the landmarks to her. Kinder Scout, Kraken Edge and Chinley. Then he saw the hand stroke her wind-blown hair. When Emily turned to face him, her face tilted upwards so that he could kiss her, Jonah knew it was over. Leaving Casper's girlfriend to sort herself out, he took off back to Mermaid House. He packed his things and left without telling Val or his father what he was doing. Another man, a real man, as his father would have been quick to say, would have confronted Casper and beaten the living daylights out of him. But apart from that one incident at school, Jonah had never resorted to violence and preferred to keep it that way. That evening, Emily had called him to tell him what he already knew, that their engagement was off. Riding high on the euphoria created by Casper's attention, she had told Jonah she hadn't realised until now how dull he was. She told him that she was moving in with Casper, that she had never known anyone so amazing. It was love at first sight, she went on. I hope you can understand that. He's literally swept me off my feet. But in less than a month, she discovered what it felt like to be swept aside. As was to be expected, Casper had lost interest in her. She wrote to Jonah, apologising for what had happened, saying that she'd been a fool, that she didn't know what had come over her. She even asked if there was any chance of them getting back together. He never replied to her letter. What was there to say? He had warned her that Casper liked nothing better than to play games with other people's emotions. There was no point in him asking why Casper had done it. His answer, as it had been the first time he had taken a girlfriend from Jonah, would have been, Because I can, Jonah. When the dust had finally settled, all he said on the matter was, She clearly wasn't in love with you, Jonah. If she had been, I wouldn't have been a temptation for her. Think of the episode as my having done you a favour. You're better off without her. No need to thank me. Now, as he tipped his mushroom risotto onto his plate and poured himself another glass of wine, Jonah wondered if anything or anyone could shame Casper into behaving like a decent human being.
So, Clara agrees to stay with Gabriel for a week and tackle the mess that is Mermaid House. Will their cunning plan satisfy Dr. Singh? Quite possibly, but it seems Gabriel's elder son Casper is set to throw his own spanner in the works. Has Clara taken on more than she bargained for? Listen in next time as the story continues. Thanks for listening.